The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. I'm Hugh Muir. On today's podcast, it's crunch time for Leveson. First the editors break ranks, then the cross-party talks collapse. What chance consensus now? Job cuts and a seven-day operation at The Telegraph. Will it work? And who'll try it next? Plus the perils of podcasting. American audio producers are facing legal action. We speak to leading podcaster Jesse Thorne. And we'll have one more TV review from Vicky Frost before her move to Pastures New. All go this week. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, it's been another frantic week in the Leveson saga. First, the newspapers broke ranks, with three papers, including The Guardian, publishing similar leader columns attacking the lack of progress. And then David Cameron dramatically ended weeks of party talks. Instead, he'll force a vote on Monday on his plan for a royal charter. It will be the most important vote on press regulation in living memory. I'm joined in the studio by Tom Clark of our sister podcast, Politics Weekly, and on the line by Professor of Journalism at City University, Roy Greenslade, and Tim Crook, author of the UK Media Law Pocketbook and visiting Professor of Broadcast Journalism at Birmingham University. Um, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. Tom, let's start with the politics, because we do seem to be in a bit of a mess. Uh, how do we get to this? Well, um, we've been having for the last day or so a kind of process where Cameron and Clegg and Miliband are all trying to cook things up together, agree a consensus. I think really what happened is that Cameron calculated that he wasn't going to prevail on that consensus. If there was going to be a consensus, he was going to have to give more ground on questions like the way that a royal charter, it's very arcane, a royal charter is um, is set up and made future-proof and on uh, the independence or not of the people appointed to the new regulator from the industry. So on those sort of points where he, I suspect he'd made promise to editors um, uh, talking out of one side of his mouth, he went in and talked to Clegg and Miliband, found that he uh, wasn't going to be able to move them far enough to fulfil those pledges, thought there's going to have to be a showdown, I may as well bring it on myself. And that's what he's doing by saying there's going to be this vote on his plan on Monday. Well, what are people to think about the the role of politics here, the ability of politics to solve things? Because this doesn't sound like rocket science. No, I mean, it sort of makes you think, doesn't it, about the um, situation you have in America where like, every time you need a budget, you need to invent a cliff edge, threaten to push everyone over it and make everyone panic before you get anything done. And it, it does have echoes of that. And I suppose at root, it goes back to the problem that British politicians, unlike American politicians, don't have their hands tied in so many ways and so are generally more able to to make decisions, but they're not very good at making decisions about people who they think will help them win or conversely lose elections, namely journalists. And so they're not able to do a sensible deal on it. Let me bring in Roy Gainslade. Roy, you've written today that Cameron has been slow to act. How much did he hem himself in with his initial reaction to Leveson? Well, by saying straight away uh, that he would accept all but statutory underpinning. I think he made it, therefore, much more difficult to compromise. Uh, And along the way, as we know, the industry has begun to pick apart not just the business of statutory underpinning, but about five or six other details. You mentioned the difficulty of appointing. We've got to a ridiculous stage where we're not certain that we can get together independent people to appoint other independent people. There's a problem about how we should arrange the code. There's a problem about the use of exemplary damages to fine, as it were, through the courts, backsliders, and anyway may fall foul of a human rights law. Then there's a whole set of problems 
related to the arbitration arm and whether or not um, regional papers can afford it. So all of this difficulty um, I, uh, against that background, I guess papers took the opportunity uh, to lobby hard, but it's quite clear that lobbying on the other side by the Media Standards Trust, by Hacked Off, by the people who've gathered around them, the so-called victims of the press, that lobbying has been terrifically successful in keeping the Labour Party absolutely on course. But I don't think they needed that much advice or help in that sense, because I detected two weeks ago when um, Lord Putnam, David Putnam, amended the defamation bill in the Lords, that he found it not at all difficult to marshal the uh, Labour Lords behind him and found common cause with a number of Tory lords, notably Lord Fowler, um, and all the crossbench peers as well. So uh, if you then translate that into the Commons, um, it's quite clear the Labour Party are united, the Lib Dems for once appear to be united, and there'll still be a number of Tories willing to vote. So I think I read it the way um, has just been mentioned, which is that Cameron will be able to say when he fails to win the vote, it's not guaranteed, but it looks unlikely that he could win, um, I did my best. And Tim, what's the media landscape now? Because as, as we said, you had three newspapers, The Guardian, The Financial Times and The Independent, all breaking ranks. Um, is there any possible common ground um, for the industry now? I think that's where the great disappointment is. I think the entire Hackgate phenomenon now running for nearly three years, is generating a kind of nuclear fusion, concatenating problems, lack of compromise, uh, quite aggressive rhetoric uh, from you know, the phrase draining the swamp to decontaminating journalism of its rogue elements. Uh, last time we heard that kind of language um, was a place and location we want to forget. Uh, I'm not surprised by the, the failure of the industry uh, to, to come together because the stakes are so appalling and devastating. You know, what is it? It's between the devil and the deep blue sea. It's between a medieval royal charter with unpredictable outcomes and a form of statutory involvement in... Uh, press media content regulation and you know from the point of view of international law regional european law and basic english common law hugely problematical you only have to look at the article 10 one of uh, european convention on human rights which really puts a, a ring fence around licensing over broadcasting and cinema and by implication means that statutory approval of content regulation of the press media is very, very questionable. Unlike my distinguished colleague, Roy Greenslade, who's been a national newspaper editor and has been right at the top, he's been a general. Uh, I've spent my entire career with my face down in the ditch, in, in the slit trench, always trying to work the story, apply the law, I now try and teach it, uh, you know, um, primary media, media law and secondary media law. It's getting more and more complicated and more and more authoritarian. And I'm afraid I don't see a positive outcome to uh, the politics. I'm a, I'm a, I completely disagree with 
Sir Brian Leveson's decision to throw the whole thing uh, to the politicians. My own view is that I think he should have, um, in a way, played chicken with the industry and said, fine, OK, we'll take what you've offered, uh, which was you know, extraordinarily punitive and rigorous, and see how they went with it. I, I disagree with uh, Roy that, uh, about the the value and the quality of the the inquiry report. I find some aspects of it very, very disappointing, and I can go into those uh, disappointing uh, uh, dimensions in detail if you want. Let me bring him back, uh, back Roy, back in there because uh, what happened? There was so much hope immediately after Leveson when all the editors sat down. They had that breakfast, if you remember, and there seemed to be a lot of unanimity. People call it said it looked like a mafia breakfast, but they all seemed as if they might be able to move in the same direction when did it start to fall apart oh within weeks that's the famous delawney meeting chaired by james harding the editor of the times who was soon after that sacked i don't think there's a link between that and what happened at delawney but what really occurred was that as editors began to understand the implications of trying to actually create a structure based around the principles of Leveson, they suddenly realized that there were tremendous problems involved, some of which I've outlined. The ridiculous tautology of independent self-regulation. No, no, I mean, how, how does one deal with that? It was a very clever phrase that I think um, somebody, probably Lord Black, came up with, but it's a kind of meaningless phrase. And in fact, However, it illustrates the massive contradiction at the heart of this, which is, is there something which can be self-regulation, which is also in some way overseen and ensured to be self-regulation that is truly independent? This, this is, uh, you know, almost a non-starter. And I think that all the editors, as they began to pull away at the fabric of Leveson, realized that they were no further down the road than before. I, I, I've come to the conclusion that, in fact, if you looked at what all everyone constantly, as a sort of mantra, now says that the PCC failed. And I, I tried to say when I gave my evidence to Leveson, I didn't think that it was that big a failure after all, if you actually thought about it. Absolutely um, correct. It, Absolutely it, correct. It, yeah. it, 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 struck, it struck me that they'd done within the ambit of their remit quite well over the years. They gradually got better and better at it. In fact, in its last year or two, after the hacking business had come to light, it is fair to say uh, that they'd done extremely well and continue, by the way, to do extremely well. So here we have a working regulator. We could tack on, which I think is very important, a standards arm. That's one that would be investigative, that could um, go into newspapers and be and, and look at things like hacking, things like the city slicker affair yeah. that they missed also. They could do that. But the third problem, arbitration, really needs to be dealt with separately and through the law. Let me end here with Tom and let's um, look forward to Monday when we'll have the debate and we'll have that big vote. What do you think will happen? Because if... If we get to a situation where Labour just keeps sticking amendments onto various bits of government legislation, it's just going to be an unholy mess, isn't it? Well, I mean, that is what we have been having. Um, uh, the, the Labour's been trying to put in what it sees as a Leveson blueprint on not just the defamation bill, but also uh, on another bill about courts and also on the Green Investment Bank bill, believe it or not. I don't know how, how that was allowed. So to... Leveson popping up everywhere. So Leveson's everywhere and Cameron's like, right. 
<laughs> we've got to deal we've got to deal with it or or, or or not and on monday i suppose what will happen is that you'll have um probably as long as things continue as it looks like they are and no one has a rethink you'll have um labor and the liberal democrats both voting one way and the conservatives the other they'll be pretty evenly matched on paper the labor and the liberal democrats combined should just have uh, the edge, but not enough of an edge so that if, for example, um, a deal were to be done with the Democratic Unionists or um, the SNP, who weren't angels all the way through this um, Hackgate saga either, uh, then then it could still swing the other way. And there are one or two people on the Labour backbenches who are unhappy with the idea of statutory regulation. So it's all going to be on what the awkward squad and the little parties choose uh, to handle it, assuming that Clegg and Miliband stick with their guns. Thanks very much, Tom. And I imagine there'll be much more of this on the Politics Weekly podcast next week. Okay, uh, Roy and Tim are still with me. Um, Let's head on to some of the other print stories of the week. Roy, today, more arrests as part of the hacking investigation, Operation Wheating. Tell us a bit about that. It appears that four people have been arrested. Uh, The former editor of the Sunday Mirror, the current editor of The People... Uh, and two former senior executives at the Sunday Mirror. Uh, And it involves an offence or alleged offence which took place in 2003-2004. We don't know much more than that. Uh, We only know, of course, that the traditional dawn raid occurred. It must have been very disturbing for all four of them, but it also is significant because it moves hacking out of News International and into Trinity Mirror, And uh, on a day when Trinity Mirror published its figures, uh, which weren't brilliant, um, unsurprisingly, something like 20% of the share price has been wiped off, I note, just before coming onto air. So it's quite clear that this is having a a negative effect on Trinity Mirror in the same way that it did News International when it broke down. Tim, do you think there'll be a nervousness in other newsrooms? I think it's catastrophic and devastating for British journalism, uh, the scale of arrests and police inquiry, unprecedented. And speaking to people involved and talking to people right across the field of journalism, it's shell-shocking. I think the the impact on the trust that sources will have in journalism and the reputation of journalism may well take generations to recover from. Um, There are... Uh, aspects to this that I can't go into detail or comment on because of contempt law. But one thing I will say in the international context, um, I've been arguing about uh, the problem of Liz Alibi Pendens, which is the, the same issues being tried and investigated in different um, legal, inquisitorial and political forums each concatenating and prejudicing each other. We can talk about a case that's finished, the uh, conviction and jailing of former Detective Chief Inspector April Casburn. I personally believe that's a miscarriage of justice. I've uh, endeavoured... Well, uh, two reasons. One, I think her trial was appallingly prejudiced. She had no possibility of having a fair trial, whatever the judge or the lawyers could do at the time. Secondly, the key evidence should never have uh, been released uh, to the police and be used uh, in in the trial process. She uh, was entitled to 
English common law and European legal protection of sources, uh, which is extent and powerful at the moment, but hasn't been recognised. Unfortunately, our legal system has not recognised the right of journalist sources to take action and assert their position when burned by the media institution employing uh, the journalist that um, provided uh, confidentiality. Let, well, me, let, me, let me just quickly I, bring in Roy. Roy? Can I, can I just come in here? First of all, let's get some things right. The arrests today of the Sunday Mirror people are by Operation Wheating, which is concerned with hacking. So uh, not, I think that's very payments, different, very different from Elverdon, which is to do with payments. On that, I share many of the concerns of Tim. I'm very sympathetic to certain of the arrested Sun journalists and have written about that being the case. I'm very concerned about the Management and Standards Committee set up by Rupert Murdoch at News International um, to use an old-fashioned phrase from my East London days, dibbing in uh, people, actually sort of giving evidence against them. And I would have thought the trade that goes on uh, for information uh, nowadays, as long as it doesn't reach unprecedented sums, is totally understandable. And in fact, if you think about it, newspapers, especially popular newspapers, have been involved in paying for stories as long as I've been a journalist. And indeed, I authorised many of the payments when I was both an editor at The Sun and an assistant editor, uh, sorry, assistant editor at The Sun and editor of The Daily Mirror. And you didn't see so, a problem with that. To be honest, I did not consider that I was breaking the law. I don't remember ever paying a policeman or authorising the payment to a policeman. But I wasn't certain on many occasions exactly who was being paid. The important thing here is that we are, we live, and this is really important, I think, and people are not grasping this. We live in Britain in a secret society. It's very interesting how Americans are absolutely baffled about the lack of ordinary information that should be made available to us, especially by the police. And therefore, because it's so secret, we tend to engage in nefarious ways of going about obtaining it. And that has led us into this strange situation where we now find ourselves being held up as lawbreakers for doing something which, in a way, our culture is forced to occur. Yeah, thanks for that. Tim, let's um, move on because uh, the Telegraph announced this week that they're to merge their Sunday title with the Daily Paper and the loss <laughs> of 80 jobs. Um, was this expected? Tim, do these seven-day operations ever really work? Well, if they do work, it's to the great credit of the, uh, the journalists, the sub-editors, the reporters, the photographers who produced the content. I, I mean, in, in the long run, it's rationalisation, it's uh, maximising uh, the profit out of uh, media content uh, publication operation. I think um, the downside of it is that if a, a Sunday title loses its identity, I think it undermines uh, one of the imperatives and powers of Sunday journalism, which I think has a cultural tradition in this country, which is very positive from the point of view of uh, you know, democracy, freedom of the press, and distinguishing an approach and stand and focus from the everyday um, journalism of the, of the daily press. Will it work? Well, I mean, for the accountants and the uh, the corporate barons, if it brings profits, fine. If it works in terms of the content and relationship with readership and multimedia audience, then it's going to be the credit to the journalist. But it means more hard work. It means, I think, 
uh, more risks. Um, and I think it means um, more diluted focus and attention uh, from the point of view of investigative journalism. Because the Sunday press has always been, I think, historically, and I'm sure, I mean, Roy is a, a much better media historian than, than I am, certainly from the point of view of one of his publications. The Sunday press has traditionally been the focus for investigative uh, in, in intensity in journalism. Well, indeed, he would know that. I think you were deputy editor of the Sunday Times, are you not, Roy? Yeah, well, number three, actually. Number three, I, I promoted yeah. you a bit. But a, a lot of this, the job, there are jobs going, but a lot of it is actually this kind of re reprioritization from print to digital. And that's calling for a whole new set of skills, isn't it, Roy? It is really. I mean, obviously, I think Sunday journalism was always a bit different from daily journalism. It was sort of what we called laid back journalism in many respects. <laughs> um, back. I, I think, uh, you know, we often said at the Sunday Times, um, we're, we're going to go back over that story. And the editor might say, well, what's new? And we'd say, oh, well, we're going for a scoop of interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of joked about that but it was perfectly true and what you did was you threw two or three reporters at a story uh, and explored every detail of it and then reproduced it and as you did that giving a longer narrative odd little discoveries were made on the way that made it incredibly valuable and also you were drawing together short stories from the week and making them much more explicable adding context and analysis and interpretation in order to enhance the the chances of a reader understanding um, context much better so I think we could miss that but I totally understand why it's being done. I mean, uh, it's all very well to say it might add to profits. Right now, there are no profits in these newspapers. When you get a paper like The Telegraph doing this, and let's face it, The Telegraph is the one serious newspaper which is said to make a profit. We, we sometimes are a bit uncertain about that because it's a private company run by the Barclay Brothers and seeing into the accounts is difficult. But let's admit that they're not making much and that's the reason they're doing it. I think what's most important is to ensure that we still get do seven-day publication. Yeah. And then it's about being clever with that seventh day in terms of what you actually cover and making sure that it just doesn't become um, another weekday newspaper. But if the nationals are finding it hard to, uh, to make a buck, it's slightly different for the regional newspapers, isn't it? Because some of them seem to be uh, seeing what one might call signs of recovery. You wrote about this in Monday's paper, didn't you, Roy? There are signs, <laughs> there are gentle signs of recovery. I think what we're seeing is uh, an understanding by publishers about the need to go back to basics at local papers and make them more local. And um, also, at the same time as making them more local, which is going back to basics, trying to enhance that with digital tools. They are very, very late into this game, to be absolutely honest. And the audience may have walked away and there may not be enough time to recapture them. But I think um, some of them at least are having a go. I mean, Johnston Press is having a go, but it is, it's, it's saddled with enormous debt. Trinity Mirror seems to be having a go by announcing an investment of $8 million, but then I know hidden away in the accounts today, it may be reducing something by $10 million, so what you're getting in one hand, you're being taken away with the other. You have a feeling that... If look at a, a much smaller operation which doesn't seek big profits, namely Mr. Tyndall's group, Sir Ray Tyndall's group, that he had this idea 20 years ago and people didn't catch on to how important it was. In the end, the 
corporations and they only exist to make a profit. And that Ray Tyndall exists because he loves newspapers. And that's the big difference. It's about intention and reason for ownership that counts. Tim Crook, what do you see as the future for local news and regional papers? I think Roy's absolutely right. Sir Ray Tyndall, attitude, respect, almost micro-community journalism, but actually traditional local journalism. And... <laughs> excellent old-fashioned business standards, values and imperatives, never borrowing and never gearing beyond that which uh, you know you're going to earn. It might mean, uh, you know, the journalists and reporters uh, are not um, enjoying life as much as people in the city. And of course, I'm exaggerating with a comparison, but it does mean successful local newspapers now in the new multimedia digital context, and uh, Ray is absolutely right, uh, you know, the local regional media uh, uh, need uh, to catch up very, very quickly. I actually um, believe that there's a great future in local journalism by going back to the local basics. And for that, you need to invest in reporters and you need to send your reporters out and with all the multimedia tools, you can electrify the imagination of your local audience and and bond in a way that um, gives you a power um, over and above the nationals, but also uh, brings in uh, a new commerce. Um, so I think um, uh, green shoots and some very good models there and the the big groups, uh, which, of course, are run along, along corporate lines, will they learn the lessons? OK, well, we're going to leave it there because it's an optimistic note and I, I didn't think we'd ever get to that. So uh, <laughs> once we're there, let's, let's draw stumps. Tim Crook and Roy Greenslade, thank you very much. Well, over the last week, all roads have led to Austin, Texas and the annual South by Southwest Music and Media Conference. Over 27 years, it's grown from a music festival to become the leading showcase for new media and technology. Media Talk regular Helen Zaltzman is in Austin because she gets all the good gigs and she joins us now. Helen, what have you been up to there? Hello, Hugh. Well, yesterday I did a panel about the future of podcasting because everything here is about the future. So the, the future of uh, newspapers in the internet world, the future of internet in the internet world, the future of the future in the internet world. It's also like a kind of Edinburgh Fringe Festival, but for nerd stuff. Well, that's why they didn't send me. Um, let, let's delve a little into the highlights there. Um, there's been some talk about live TV and second screens. Is that right? Yeah, that seems to be a really big buzzword, the second screen. And what they're not sure about yet is the, the optimal way to integrate it, particularly now that so many people are watching not live. So they might be watching on Plus One or Catch Up. Where's the dialogue going to come around a show with something big? like, say, the X Factor final, people will be uh, watching live and wanting to live comment. But with other things with a slightly longer tail, how can you keep that sort of feeling of a community buzz going? And also, now that Netflix has released House of Cards all in one lump, all the whole series in one go, you don't have the traditional experience of each week, people getting psyched up at a particular time and thinking, this is my House of Cards time. So they're curious to know what the, what the equivalent is going to be, how that's going to change in the next year or two as more of that happens. Obviously, they see that second screen as an important part of the package. Yeah, well, it's going to make people a lot more inattentive, isn't it? But there are apps like Zbox, um, which has a deal with Sky. So the second screen might actually be on your primary screen as well. So you could be watching a show that has tweets and things scrolling down at the same time as watching. Or one of the other functions that they have on Zbox is that 
you not only get these uh, these tweet streams that um, are about the show, but also you can click through so you can find out more about the people who make the show. They can have Q&A with some of the program makers afterwards if uh, they've convinced them to do that. So it's potentially quite interesting, but it's also encouraging just a, a shorter, shorter attention span. You know, remember how people were panicking about that with the MTV generation. Yeah. I think this will make it a lot worse. So they diagnose the problem, but uh, anything like a coherent solution? Well, that's a very interesting question. I went to a talk by um, Harvey Levin, who set up TMZ, the online news, very tabloidy news site, which is enormously successful. They broke the news of Michael Jackson's death, for instance, before traditional media. And he was saying, in five years' time, I don't think TV will exist. I don't think internet will exist. I think there'll be something else. And everyone was asking him what, and he did not have an answer. For that, for that you have to so, pay me a large fee. <laughs> I think you, and think you just you had what. this theory that, sound, that sounded attractive. I think more realistically, you'll just the, the distinction to the viewer will be a lot more blurry. So they won't really mind as much whether things came from TV or the internet. But I think probably both mediums will still exist in five years. What's been said, if anything, about the Stop Online Piracy Act as was? I mean, it's been laid aside, but are people still yeah. worried about the rights of uh, internet users going forward? Yeah, I think they really are, because I think it's only a matter of time before something else comes along. I think they feel that the government is not protecting the interests of the little guy. So there was a, bit, a big event uh, in memory of Aaron Schwartz, uh, the man who, who wrote uh, RSS feed, and he was one of the um, creators of Reddit, the very popular message board site. And uh, he committed suicide a few weeks ago because he was facing up to 50 years in federal prison for copyright um, violations because he he took academic papers and from MIT and made them available for free online. His big thing was that information that is available should be available to everybody. And that's obviously a huge clash between that attitude, which does benefit a lot of people, and the attitude of people providing the, the content and the information. And it seems that things are actually moving away a bit from reconciliation. So I think it could be quite a turbulent few years. Okay, well, let's come to the, the reason why we really wanted you there, because uh, there's, there's talk of a, a threat to the podcasting industry, and it's, got, it's obviously got us very worried. Um, something to do with patent trolls. What can you tell us about that? Well, at the moment, it's not an issue that affects us directly because we're in Britain, and this is um, an American patent. So patent trolls go around and sue people because they've seen that there's a patent that no one else has really noticed because it's so old it's scarcely relevant. They found one which is to do with the, the whole way that podcasts are, are delivered. So it really goes right into the bedrock of podcasts. But they're actually suing content creators. So this is like if uh, you had an old patent for something within a television, how a television works, you go and sue This Morning or EastEnders. So a lot of American podcasters have received threatening legal letters. The, the lawsuits are likely to cost them $3 million. Very few podcasters have that kind of money. Obviously, Guardian Media Talk is rolling in it. But a huge range of podcasters have been receiving uh, legal warnings you know, from very famous uh, comedians to people that have built a podcasting business from the ground up. And one such person is Jesse Thorne, who runs uh, the Maximum Fun uh, podcasting empire. And I spoke to him earlier about it. America has a sort of antiquated patent system, which, among other things, protects software and ideas for software. At the moment, there's a company called Personal Audio, 
and they have a patent that they claim is on podcasting. It is, broadly speaking, on a media player that plays serialized audio content over the internet. They won on a different audio-related patent uh, a case against Apple and got an $8 million settlement. Is that because Apple were using it in iTunes? Or? Yeah, it was something having to do with playlists mm-hmm. in iTunes, I believe. They have sued three major podcasters and have sent letters requesting a license to many other podcasters, um, basically saying, we've got, a license on, we've got a patent on podcasting, you have to license it or else. And the tricky bit is that patent litigation in the United States costs an average of $1 to $3 million. Which, uh, as podcasting money goes, is yeah. not, not that attainable. And so the way these patent trolls work, and it works the same way in other technologies, is they say, we will sue you or you can license our technology. And the company has to look at its bottom line and say, well, we could spend $3 million defending ourselves in this lawsuit. There's no guarantee that we'll win because they do it in a particular jurisdiction that has a particular judge and a particular jury pool that are amenable to uh, these suits. They say there's no guarantee we could win, even if we're right. If we do win, then we're still out $3 million because we still have to pay for our legal fees. And if we just license now, we just know we're only going to be out $200,000 or $500,000. And is the thing that they made uh, something which really... Well, they, they, have have never, they have never made anything. Okay. That the, part of the patent system, there's no requirement for you to make the thing that you have patented. Is there a way for podcasters to circumvent? Well, the, there, are two, there are two situations going on right now. One is there's currently a bill before Congress that would make it so that if you brought a patent suit against a company and you lost, you would have to pay... The opposing side's legal fees, which would obviously dramatically alter the mathematics for the companies whose only business is bringing patent suits. And that's currently before Congress, and the Electronic Freedom Foundation is um, working on that right now, and you can find out more at eff.org shield. It's called the SHIELD Act. The other side is on the legal side, and it is possible to essentially appeal patents, have them reconsidered. Because they are very ill-considered because of a huge backlog at the patent office and a lack of expertise. And also because you make a perfectly good civil service living as a lawyer at the patent office looking at patents, but you can do that for two years and then leave and become an incredibly highly paid patent attorney doing these patent lawsuits. So there is a reconsideration process, and the hope is that one of the folks who've been sued will lead the patent down that path and that it will be overturned. But the odds on that are not great. And have any of the lawsuits uh, been successful for the patent owners as yet? Well, they they won one judgment for $8 million, or they, they won in court and then settled for $8 million before the penalty portion uh, against Apple on a separate patent. On this patent, they've only just brought the suits. And in fact, they, they sued the wrong company in one of the cases. They sued Adam Carolla's company is called Ace Broadcasting, and there's a different company that he's not associated with called Ace Broadcasting, I think, that they accidentally sued. Well, that must have been a surprise to Ace Broadcasting. Yeah, but I'm sure that they will rectify that soon enough. It's a very scary situation for podcasters, in, including me. They've said that they are not going to target public media, which I can only hope I'm included in. 
Um, but it's a system that needs reform, and it's also, in this specific case, a very dangerous situation for American podcasters. That's Jesse Thorne, the owner of the uh, podcast network MaximumFun.org. And Helen, just explain again, if uh, this is affecting American podcasts, why not British? And, and, and could we have this kind of irritation over here? Uh, well, that would be the fear. I'm choosing not to worry about it until I have to, because there's no way I can afford to worry about it. Uh, and also, I'm not very well up on uh, how international patent laws work. So let's not panic you until we absolutely have to. Buy a big dog. Yeah, I think big dogs work online as a deterrent to <laughs> legal problems. Certainly when the lawyers come round. Lawyers hate dogs. It's very well known. OK, Helen Zaltzman in Austin. Enjoy what's left and uh, thanks, for, thanks for your time. Thank you, Hugh. OK, let's get to the poignant bit of this podcast because uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to get through this. Vicky Frost is with us. Uh, she's doing her TV review, but it will be the last TV review for who knows... How long? For nine months. Nine months. I'm not sure how we're going to cope. Why? Well, not because I'm going off to have a weird, illegitimate baby, as that sounds, for nine months. I'm going to Australia uh, to help launch God in Australia. So I will be uh, in Sydney. Oh, life is hard for uh, the next nine months, I'm afraid. Okay, well, let's talk about the telly here, and then I want you to tell me all about Sydney. But uh, (laughs) So um, what have you been doing with the rest of your week as you count down the days? (laughs) Well, I have been, uh, I've been watching MasterChef a bit, actually, which, of course, is very popular in Australia as well, and has had a little bit of a revamp as it comes back to BBC One. Uh, it came back this week, and, you know, they're always sort of trying to make MasterChef sort of even shoutier than ever before, and uh, they're given a bit of a twist. It's sort of freshened it up a little bit, to be honest, but I still feel like MasterChef The Professionals has slightly come and uh, eaten MasterChef's lunch a little bit, and everyone likes The Professionals more now. I like the sound of that. Has it got kind of policemen driving around in really fa- chefs driving around in really fast, <laughs> old-style Ford Cortinas? I think that's a good hybrid. I-, I think that's surely only the next step, <laughs> given the amount of uh, crossness and shouting. And, you know, they've sort of introduced kind of a couple of new rounds in, the, in, in this initial sort of start. And, you know, it's quite interesting. John, like, cooks something, and then the contestants have to guess what's in it by taste alone and then try and recreate it, which is actually quite a hard thing. And it does make you have a bit more respect for people because you think, no, I probably couldn't do that. Whereas normally you're looking at the things they create out of that mystery box and you're just thinking, what were you thinking? Have you ever been in a kitchen before? Because even I could do better than that. The thing is, not only is it a really long series, but of course it has so many different versions of it all over telly. And, you know, MasterChef The Professionals has sort of morphed into a show that's really very good. Uh, Michelle Rouge, just really watchable, really great. Although, interestingly, not in other, uh, not in Food and Drink, which he's come back and he's hosting. Somehow that magic's gone there. But in MasterChef, and in a very interesting doc he did about a scoffier, actually, for BBC4, uh, Michelle Jr. is just really great watching. And I think Greg and John really sort of, they just can't quite m- match him for that sort of uh, mix of knowledge and steeliness, but also wanting people to do well. They're just still a bit shouty. So really. the food's superfluous, really. It's about the characters. Yeah, all about the characters, always, yeah. OK, uh, here's the next pitch. MasterChef, make it stop. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of people who would watch that. <laughs> <laughs> what else have you been doing? So I've been looking at It's Kevin, which starts on Sunday night on BBC Two. Um, so now, Kevin Eldon, you will know Kevin Eldon. He's in everything. Uh, so you'll know what he looks like. 
Well, if as soon as you see him, you'll just think, oh, yeah, 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 that's Kevin Eldon. He's in everything there ever is that's funny, basically. And he's finally got his own show. He's in his 50s, so, you know, really, he's, like, waited his time. Woohoo, great his, power. To get his... Well, he's not great. He looks really young for 52. I was thinking that the other day. I really, really like this. I think it's really funny. It, actually, I think it's really silly, which I really embrace because uh, not enough comedy is. It's kind of like a little sketchy kind of show. Uh, it has a really lovely pace to it. It's almost sort of languid, you know. You know, you know sometimes those sort of comedy shows, they feel like really, ah, we've got to get to the jokes and we've yeah, got to get yeah. to the next one. It's got to be really fast. This is like, it has a really lovely pace. It's very languid. There is quite a lot of surreal moments in it, but not in a way that makes you think, oh, God, you know, student comedy. They're really well done. Uh, there are loads of, you know, really good laughs. I think this is a great thing. I don't really understand why it's on at 10.30 on Sunday night. I feel like they could have given, BBC Two could have given them a bit more of a push. Does that I've, mean they weren't sure? I don't exactly know whether that's whether that's harsh, whether they're sort of shielding it slightly so it's got time to bed in. But if you haven't noticed it yet, do notice it now because it's a really lovely thing. I've seen the first two and I would happily sit down and watch another couple uh, sort of straight away, really. What else before you go? Well, I was going to BBC Two, of course. Uh, we just talked about uh, it's Kevin. I've just come now from uh, the Broadcast Press Awards, which are basically, it's basically like, you know, uh, television press, people who write about telly and judging their awards. And that's why BBC Two has just absolutely swept the board, actually. It's won pretty much everything it could possibly win. At one point, I thought it was going to win multi-channel of the year. It seemed to have won so many other prizes. It was unstoppable. But I think it's a really testament to how well Janice Hadlow has, is doing at BBC Two that it just won everything. You know, Bake Off won, 2012 won. It's, it's just really in such good shape. So when you go, and uh, I don't want to hasten it, but when you go... Will you be doing the telly over there? Yes, uh, probably. Well, the answer is I really don't know yet, and I probably won't know till I get there. It's all a big adventure, and uh, I guess I'll sort of see how it pans out. I mean, but, you know, it will always be a bit sunnier. And you know what they're going to say. You come over here, you watch our telly. I mean, do you know anything about Australian telly? Uh, well, Australian telly has quite a lot of US imports and a fair number of British imports. And uh, actually, I think they're just about to get Bake Off, Great Australian Bake Off, which I think I've done very well because I've had all of Great British Bake Off. And now I can go to Australia and Great Australian Bake Off will start and I get to just relive it all. It's going to be fantastic. A whole new series to be excited about. Uh, what's big on Australian television? We have a little quiz for you. Um, what? <laughs> I know, and it's, a, it's desperately unfair, and that's why we're going to do it. Um, what is this week's highest rated show on Australian TV? Uh, I'm certain it's cookery-based, uh, because oh. their food programmes are uh, immense out there. Is it MasterChef? It is My Kitchen Rules. Oh, right, OK. But I ain't half bad. Which international pop act has been recruited as a judge for the new Australian series of The Voice? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't even really pay that much attention to the voice in the UK anymore, let alone the voice in Australia. Ricky Martin. <laughs> La Vida Barca. Really? That's yeah, such a weird voice. Oh, well, oh, that's maybe, totally weird, maybe. Maybe, maybe it's because they had a lot of money and they wanted to get a really big star, or maybe it's just because he can't get the work. But anyway, he's, <laughs> it is him. Um, and uh, one more, one more. You're not doing too badly. The first one you almost got. What's the name of Australia's equivalent of the BAFTAs? 
The Logies. I know this. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Now, this is why you're going to Australia. <laughs> Obviously, we know you are a person with the, 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 the sort of expertise that will do well out there. I mean, that is expert, isn't it? Expert opinion. <laughs> well, look, have a marvellous time out there. I, I actually looked up the, um, we all know good day, but I looked up the opposite of that. And apparently it's Uru. Oh. Uru is goodbye. So we'll say goodbye. And thanks for all of the reviews. Hope it goes really well out there. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Vicky, of course, to Roy Greenslade, to Tom Clark, Tim Crook, Jesse Thorne and Helen Zaltzman. My name is Hugh Muir. The producer was Matt Hill. Thanks for listening and goodbye or uru, whichever you prefer. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.